A very moving, true story took place uh, about 90 years ago. True story. A Southern Baptist missionary had spent 40 years in Africa, and he decided to, to retire, and he wrote a couple friends uh, in America that he would be coming home. Well, as the ship comes in to the New York Harbor, he hears a band playing. And he thought, oh, they shouldn't have done this for me. Oh, bless their hearts. And he was all excited, and he had his suitcases ready to go. And uh, just as, he, as the boat landed, he started out. Policeman said, stop here, sir. Oh, he put his bags back down. It turns out that President Theodore Roosevelt had been in Africa for three weeks game hunting. He was on the same ship. The band was for the president. <laughs> and when the old missionary walked down the gangplank and, and put his suitcases down, he looked... Not a soul came to meet him. He made his way three blocks over to a third-rate hotel in New York, went to his room, fell on his bed, and said, Lord, I serve you for 40 years in Africa, and I come home, there's nobody here, the president, three weeks game hunting, <laughs> and he comes home and a band plays. But then he heard the Lord say, but you're not home yet. <laughs> We're not home yet. Would you like more of the same, or would you like to see the new and the different. Brief word of prayer. Heavenly Father, I pray now for the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus by your spirit to be upon every mind in this place in order that their perception of what I say will be heard as you intend. No misinterpretation, no misunderstanding. Cleanse my tongue that I will be your transparent instrument to say what needs to be said, nothing that doesn't need to be said. I pray that this will be a word that as we begin a new season, give us a foretaste of things you're going to do here at Kensington Temple over the next six months. We pray for Colin and Amanda that this will be a great time for them. May all that we say from this pulpit over these six months bring great honor and glory to your name. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I came up with the sermon title, The New and Different, but I have to tell you where I first heard the expression or used it. Uh, many years ago, I was a door-to-door -door 
vacuum cleaner salesman. I don't know whether that impresses you. I used to say it to Westminster Chapel, to our middle-class church, let them know that their pastor used to be a door-to-door vacuum cleaner salesman. We were deep in debt in those days and couldn't go out into full-time ministry. And uh, it was very humbling. All my fellow students at Trevecca were out pastoring churches. And what was I doing? Hello. I'm R.T. Kendall. I've come to show you something new and different for your home. (laughs) That was the way I spent many years ago. I just thought you might like to know that. What we do today is continue in our series of messages on Elisha. We went through Elisha, got halfway through, and all going according to plan, we will finish our series on Elisha. And what we have is another miracle in his life, uh, which is an extension of the previous uh, event. And if you recall that death was in the pot, and Elisha said, get some flour and serve it to the people, and there was nothing harmful in the pot. But we're talking about the same meal now. Uh, What we have here is that somebody uh, by the name of Shalisha brought 20 loaves of barley bread baked from the first fruits. Now, that's important. First Fruits. That's what the Hebrew says. It's in the ESV. It's a King James Version. Uh, how would you like to feed 100 men, hungry men, and you only have 20 loaves of barley? Uh, did you ever hear the expression... You know, it's not, it's not the food, it's the fellowship. Don't believe it. It's a lie. <laughs> Whoever really believes that it's the fellowship. Try having fellowship at a banquet when there's no food. Or, let's put it this way, uh, when uh, there are 20 loaves and Hungry men, a hundred of them, waiting to be fed. Don't tell me it's the fellowship. In fact, let's be honest, the better the food, the better the fellowship. (laughs) That would be more honest. Well, there wasn't nearly enough food, but Elisha steps in and says, feed them. They come back, we can't possibly feed them. But Elisha says, set this food before the hundred men. Give it to the people to eat. For this is what the Lord says, they will eat and have some left over. Now that's a, a very daring statement. Because when you ever use the phrase, the Lord says, or the Lord told me, you better know what you're saying. Now, some of you may recall that I strongly discourage anybody using the name of the Lord. When you say, the Lord told me to tell you this, don't do that. 
You have no warrant in Scripture to do that. You say, well, Elisha did it. You're not Elisha. And he had this gift. The problem with people today, they'll say, the Lord told me, hardly ever comes out that it was the Lord and the same people. They never apologize and say, oh, got it wrong. You need to be very careful. I won't go into this in any more detail except to say, you've got no warrant to do that. But now Elisha, he is not only saying, the Lord told me, and it's not going to be something that you would know months from now. You're going to know in a few minutes. And so to put your prophetic gift on the line and say, go ahead and eat. You're going to find out. And they start eating. And do you know, there was food left over. That's an unusual, very wonderful miracle. I don't think that happens many times today. But I can tell you this. Have you ever heard of Heidi Baker? Mozambique. I've been there a couple years ago. Hope to go back there this year. Uh, she invited a dozen people over to her home to eat. Eighty people showed up. How they thought they were invited, I don't know. But Heidi said they watched the food multiply and the whole crowd was filled. God can do that. Well, you see, Elisha felt responsible to feed them. He was the leader of these prophets. Uh, these prophets had been around since Elijah's day. And now, in Elisha's day, he was to teach them. Uh, this could be the beginning of Bible colleges. Or in America, they call them seminaries, uh, where you train people for the ministry. And that's what was going on. Well, his word saying, the word of the Lord. I don't know what he taught those hundred prophets. But I can tell you this, it's a very serious thing to use the phrase, the Lord says, unless the Lord really said it. Far better to say, I have a feeling you ought to do this. Uh, this is something I suggest you do. If it turns out, they'll say, the Lord must have told you that. Let them find it out. The only reason you and I would say the Lord told me is to make ourselves look good, not to make God look good. We're doing it to increase our credibility. God doesn't like that. Now, something you should know, I think, about my own style of preaching. It's this. I preach what the text calls for. In other words, I don't take a subject to the text and make it come out. That would not be the way I've been trained. It's not the way I preach. In other words, if the text calls for it, I'll preach it. If it doesn't call for it, I'll wait a week or a year until it does call for it. That's just the way I do. It's called expository preaching. Now, the reason I tell you that is to prepare you for something that you may not be thrilled with. And I, I have to admit, I'm a little nervous that 
on my first day back to hit you with this. But do you know what it means when it talks about the first fruits? Do you know what the first fruits means? You ready for this? Tithing. That's it. My first Sunday back, I've got to say this. I hope you won't be too disappointed. I hope nobody walks out. Actually, we do have policemen at the door. <laughs> We're not going to let you out. Tithing. First fruits. You know what it means? First fruits, you have a list of things you need to buy. You pay your rent, you buy petrol, or you buy food, and pay electricity, and down the list. And then at the bottom, you put tithing. And what happens when you do that, the Lord doesn't always get it. And we say, well, sorry, Lord, you know, I've got it on the list, but I had to do this. And we make excuses. First fruits means it's at the top of the list. You start out with this first. And you make a covenant to live on 90% of your income. I wonder what would happen if everybody here began to live on 90% of your income. I can tell you this, this would be honoring to God and I can tell you more, he will bless you for it. I'm not saying you'll be driving a Mercedes Benz, but I'm going to tell you this, something my father taught me many years ago, my dad taught me tithing. He held to what you could call a mathematical incredulity. That's the 90% you live on will go as far as the 100% you started out with. That may surprise you. Dad lived that way. He was not a rich man. But he always had enough. And for 55 years, Louise and I have been tithers. When I say 55, I could say 60. We'll be we will have been married 60 years in June. But I can tell you, for the first few years, I was not a tither. I'm ashamed to tell you, my reasoning when I was in debt was that God understands he would want me to pay off my debts. That would be the most religious thing I could do. And when I would pay off my debts, then I would start tithing. And that was the way I assumed it would be. The trouble is, a year later, we were deeper in debt. Two years later, deeper in debt. It was after I started selling vacuum cleaners that I began to tithe. And we didn't get out of debt in six months. It took a couple years. But we've been tithers ever since. And we've always had enough. And we've not known financial pressure. And if you're here under financial pressure, uh, I can tell you, 
You give God what is his. Here's the interesting thing. Well, people say, but R.T., that's under the law. That's Old Testament. That's under the law. We're not under the law. Well, you're right about that. You are so right. But tithing began 430 years before the law ever came. The first tither was Abraham. 430 years before the law came. Read it, Genesis 14. And he tithed voluntarily, not because God put a pistol to his head. It was the leadership of the Holy Spirit. He just felt led to give a tithe to, to Melchizedek. Jacob also did it. You see, the patriarchs began tithing. And then 400 years later, God made it legal. You had to do it. It was required. Here's the thing. We're not under the law. We are not under the law. When Jesus died on the cross, the law was abolished. We go right back to Abraham. He is our example. And Abraham was the prototype Christian. That means the first Christian. Genesis, uh, sorry, Galatians 3 verse 8. The gospel was preached to Abraham. And I'll tell you something. Learn from Abraham how to live the Christian life. All you need to know about living the Christian life, Abraham, Paul's chief example of justification by faith, Romans chapter 4, Abraham. If you want to learn about an inheritance, Abraham, it's all there. And yet, here's the amazing thing. Even though they were under the law, Malachi 3.10 says, bring the whole tithe into the storehouse and see if I won't bless you. You know, that, that amazes me. Because it was under the law, God didn't have to promise them anything because they were supposed to do it. But God says, watch what I do. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse. What's the storehouse? Ask any rabbi. It was the synagogue. This is God's way of supporting the ministry. And what does it mean by whole tithe? It means the whole tithe. There are those who, when they come to church, tithe that week. If they miss the following Sunday, they forget it. If they were giving the whole tithe, then the third Sunday, they would double. You ought to be able to look at your receipts at the end of 12 months and find that you have been a tither. Check it. Oh, you know, I don't feel like I have to do anything like that. I'm telling you, would you want God to be faithful to you? It's God putting us on our honor. Tithing doesn't get you to heaven. And by the way, it won't even help you get to heaven. I'm not suggesting you to tithe if you think you want to be sure you're saved. Look, if you th there is a sense in which tithing could hurt you. Hurt? Yep. 
It hurts if you think it helps. If you think tithing helps your chances, <laughs> you got it wrong. We get to heaven because Jesus died for us on the cross. Tithing is a way of saying thank you. Abraham tithed because he was thankful. It is part of the doctrine of sanctification, gratitude, saying thank you to God. Well, this is the thing. Tithing was in action when the word of the Lord came to Elisha. And the bread of, of the first fruits. Uh, did you ever eat, if unless you lived on a farm, I doubt you have, the first big tomato that came off of a vine or ear of corn? Years ago when we lived in Indiana, I had a garden and raised squash, okra, uh, aubergines, corn, tomatoes. I will never forget the first big tomato. You've never tasted anything like it. The first ear of corn, nothing like it. Now here's the thing. They could have said, you know, we got a hundred loaves, first fruits. Let's not waste it on these men. Let's save it and enjoy it ourselves. But no, they shared it. And so Elisha gives the first fruits to the 100 men. And look what God did. God gave them everything, gave them the food, the miracle. Here's a verse that you should know backwards and forwards. But in case you don't, I will read it. It's 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 6. Paul, remember this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows generously will also reap generously. God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you. You cannot outgive the Lord. Well, I remember when I was in Fort Lauderdale pastoring a church, there was a member who said to me, Pastor, I give $5 a week. That's it. And uh, that to him was a lot of money. He reckoned if everybody gave that, there'd be a lot more, and he gave $5 a week. I didn't say anything back. I said, okay. About a year later, he came up to me and he says, by the way, we've started tithing. I said, you have? Good. He says, guess what? You tell me. We haven't missed it. Now, that was his testimony. He didn't say, we've got a new Mercedes Benz. He just said, we haven't missed it. But that to him was huge. He was so sure if he started tithing, they weren't going to make it. He says, we haven't missed it. I'm telling you, if you wait, pay all your bills, and then tithe, God will probably not, not get it. First fruits. All right, this miracle. It was a new miracle. That means unprecedented, unprecedented. Never in the history of Israel had there been a miracle like this. You see, uh, 
some of the miracles done by Elisha uh, had a precedent. Even Elijah, there was a precedent. But this one was altogether different, new, different. Are you willing to see the new and different? Or are you more at home if there's been a precedent for it? Well, let me put it to you this way. What if God were to ask you to do something that has never been done by anybody before? And you knew it was God. And he says, you've got to do it. But you say, Lord, who else has done this? It doesn't matter. I want you to do it. But Lord, that's not fair. Let me know that somebody's done this before. What if God were to make that kind of request of you? Are you willing to move outside your comfort zone and just to obey him? I have to tell you something. Over the years, and I've been a Christian now for, I think, 62, 63 years, no, I've been in the ministry that long. I've been 82, 60. I've been a Christian 76 years. But for the last 60, 62 years, God has required of us to do what nobody had done before. And it is scary. But God may put that to you. Uh, when at Westminster Chapel, I did... I took a great risk. I invited Arthur Blessed, the man that is carried across around the world, to come to Westminster Chapel. And I got in a heap of trouble over it. But dear Arthur, he built this wooden cross, a uh, 16-foot uh, cross, nailed it to the wall of a place called his place. He called it his place in Hollywood on Sunset Strip. Arthur said, if I knew I was going to have to carry it, I wouldn't have made it so big. One day, five o'clock in the morning, God says, take the cross down and carry it on foot around the world. Nobody had ever done anything like that before. You talk about unprecedented. This is unthought. Nobody could imagine anything like this. But now he's 77 years old. He's carried the cross 46,000 miles. Has the Guinness Book of Records for the longest walk. He called me two weeks ago and said, I'm carrying the cross in South Denver. And I've just been praying for you. And he phoned me as he's carrying the cross. And he said how much he loved me. But we had him at Westminster Chapel. I tell you, there were those who said, look, let him go to Speaker's Corner. That's, his, that's Arthur's place. Speaker's Corner, but not Westminster Chapel. Coming in jeans without a tie and a jacket. That in itself was unprecedented at Westminster Chapel. He turned us upside down. Best decision I made in 25 years. Maybe God will ask you to do what no one has done before. 
What a privilege if he would honor you like that. Well, here is Elisha having a hundred men there. He says, the Lord says it. He put his prophetic gift on the line. They're going to find out in minutes whether it was true. Well, a new miracle. No precedent for this. And what if God wants to work in your life and do what has never been done before? Are you aware that in Hebrews chapter 11, the faith chapter talks about Noah, Enoch, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Samuel. Have you ever noticed one thing about those people? Every one of them had to do what had never been done before. Every one of them. If only they could have a precedent for it. But no, they had to do something different. And as long as we can look over our shoulders and say, well, they did it, so I guess I can. In fact, Jesus said to Peter, Peter, for all your life you've been able to go where you wanted to go, do what you wanted to do. You read it in John 21, verse 21. You read it. And as Jesus told Peter how he was going to die, all Peter could think of, what about John here? What about John? And Jesus said, it's none of your business. What if I want him to live till he dies? You follow me. And you see, we're all like that. We want to make sure that somebody else has done it. I happen to believe that 2018 is going to be a very significant year. And it may require that you and I do what we've never done before. And it's scary going outside your comfort zone. And what if God requires that of you? Well, it was a new miracle. It was a noble miracle. You see, after all, this fresh bread, they could have kept to themselves and enjoyed it, but they shared it. It was a noble thing to do. And I can tell you, uh, there are those who don't like this teaching. Uh, in the same way you've heard people say, you know, it's not the money, it's the principle. When everybody, anybody ever says to you, it ain't the money, it's the principle, it's the money. <laughs> After I wrote my book, Tithing, by the way, I, I called my publisher years ago, Hodder and Stoughton, and said, I want to, I want to, write a book on tithing. There was silence at the end of the phone. I said, hello? Are you there? Yes. Uh, did you say you wanted to write a book on tithing? Yep. We'll get back to you in a week. Well, I knew what they were thinking. When I first came to London, I was... Uh, interviewed by a Christian magazine editor. And he put a very delicate question to me. He says, uh, what, what do you see are the defects of British Christianity? Well, I said, I'm not qualified to answer that. I, I don't know that much. I will say two things. It seems to me that British Christians are 
A, weak in evangelism. The other is British Christians don't tithe. And uh, that was it. So I, I, I noticed that. So I wrote Hodder and Stout and called them. I want to write a book on tithing. They came back a week later and said, here's the deal. If we publish your book on tithing, will you buy a thousand copies? <laughs> yes. Okay, we'll do it. You know what they're doing. They, they are convinced it's a financial loss for them. They didn't want to hurt my feelings, but they didn't want to lose any money. And if I bought a thousand copies, they, it would pay for the first print run. And I said, yes. I got Billy Graham, Sir Fred Catherwood, Vice President of European Parliament, John Stott, and eventually the Archbishop of Canterbury came on board. Do you know what? That book is still in print today, 40 years later. It's went in America, it's gone through, I think, 60 reprints. Uh, it's published in Spanish, in I don't know how many languages. You know what it taught me? Do you know why people don't tithe? You want to know the reason? They haven't been taught. That's all. They haven't been taught. And preachers won't preach it. For one thing, if they preach it, it means they're going to have to start tithing. <laughs> and the second thing is, uh, they're afraid people will suspect their motives. Well, I didn't care what they thought of my motive. I knew it was biblical, and I went for it. And I can tell you now, on this, my first Sunday back to you, it's a little embarrassing, but I'm only doing what the text calls for, and I'm telling you, the tithe is God's money. This is why it's the first fruits. It, here's what this means. In case you didn't know, the word tithe means one-tenth. So if you make ten pounds, a pound is his. The Bible says the tithe is the Lord's. The tithe is the Lord's. He puts you on your honor to give him what is his. It's already his. So, if you make 10,000 pounds, 1,000 pounds is the Lord's. If you give him 500 pounds instead of 1,000, according to Malachi, you've robbed him of 500 pounds. That's why you have that verse, Malachi 3, verse 8, will a man rob God? The difference between God and the internal revenue is that God puts you on your honor. The internal revenue just takes it from you. They don't trust you. They make sure they get it. But God's not like that. He puts you on your honor. And then Malachi says something very interesting. I wonder if you've ever noticed this. Are you aware that the Bible makes no attempt to prove God's existence? You would think, you know, this, this is God's in-house book. This is his book. You'd think somewhere here he'd say something to prove 
his existence somewhere. He never does. He just says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Doesn't prove his existence. Theologians do that. Philosophers do that. They have what they call the teleological proof of God, the ontological proof of God, the cosmological proof of God. And it just is preaching to the choir. People don't get saved from it. The people that get saved through apologetics, very, very rare. Very, very rare. It's the sovereign work of the Holy Spirit that makes a person a Christian. Apologetics have their place, and I'm not against them. I'm just telling you, the Bible doesn't do it. Except one time. <laughs> Once. You know where it is? Malachi 3, will a man rob God? And then Malachi says, prove me. Here it comes. Prove me herewith and see if I will not open up a blessing so great you're not able to contain it. And so he never says, I will show you that I exist because I'm going to do this or that. No, he says, by tithing. By tithing. And it's amazing how God just, he does it. You cannot outgive the Lord. But it was also a needful miracle. You see, these men had to eat. God chose to feed them in the middle of a famine. He, uh, they were having this miracle because they needed it. And this is when God does miracles. You want me to tell you when he does miracles? When you need one. When you need one. He's not going to do it just to... Say, oh, wasn't that fun? Did you ever hear of King Herod? They brought Jesus to Herod. And Herod said, oh, this is wonderful. I've been hearing about Jesus. He was hoping to see Jesus perform a miracle, like pull a rabbit out of the hat or make money come out of thin air. And so Herod says, do a miracle for me. And here was Jesus' response. You ready for this? <laughs> Have you any idea how much courage it took to say nothing? Sometimes you can, you know the phrase, silence is golden. You can do so much by... Shutting your mouth. Jesus just stood and said, no, it drove him mad. Herod made him so angry. The greatest freedom is having nothing to prove. And Jesus didn't say a word. So when God performs a miracle, it's not going to try to humor somebody or make you think this is great, this is fun. Woo, beats any show I ever saw. No, it's for those who need it. It was a needful miracle. And you see, this is why we pray the Lord's Prayer. I don't know if you do. Louise and I pray every day of the year. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. First petition, you know what it is? Give us this day our daily bread. 
Isn't that interesting? You would have thought that Jesus giving us the Lord's Prayer would put, forgive us our trespasses first, or lead us not into temptation. No, it starts out, give us this day our daily bread. God knows that we have to eat. He accommodates our weakness. That's the first thing we ask for. And we pray for those who aren't aware that they have food. And this is how when, when the crisis comes, I was here last year when the Grenfell Tower, uh, the fire that destroyed so many lives, there would be those who say, well, I'm not going to get involved. They're all Muslims that live in that tower. Do you know what? It was a day when Sikhs and Muslims and Christians joined together to help clothe and feed those who lost everything. God wants us to be like that. I closed. It was a nutritious miracle. God provided for them what was tasty and good for them. And God does not provide sustenance that is not good for us. Well, I hope you can see why this is an important word. It anticipates the miracle of Jesus feeding the 5,000 with the loaves and the fish. Elisha's miracle hardly compares to Jesus feeding 5,000. But his feeding 5,000, that was unprecedented. And it shows the unprecedented ways in which God can manifest his power. Also goes to show that men of God need to be fed. They need to eat. No one is so godly or spiritual that they can outgrow needing to eat. And someone provided the food. Before you and I were converted, somebody paid the bills. And now it's the torch has been passed to us, and we pass it on. Well, I think we're on the brink of the greatest move of God that we've ever seen. We're on the brink of it. And Colin Dye, a few weeks ago, I heard his sermon. It was wonderful. On times of refreshing... From the presence of the Lord, Acts chapter 3, Peter preaching. And I would not be surprised if in the year 2018, that that we have dreamed of and prayed for and hoped for actually happens. I believe it's coming to the world. I think it's coming to England. I think it's coming to London. And wouldn't it be wonderful if God would grace us here at Kensington Temple with just that? I'm just glad to be around. But remember, it could mean, almost certainly will mean, going outside your comfort zone. May we pray. Heavenly Father, I ask you to apply this message by your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.